welcome to Solving Healthcare. We got Quadro Caramanting with Theodore Caramanting. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> and this is with, and the real podcast is with Andre Picard. But let's get to it, man. Yep, yep, yum, yum, yep, yep, yep. Pizza! Episode 13, let's go! Woo! Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Quadro Caramanting. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients, and their families because inefficiencies, overwork, and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified, and just for everyone involved. Yo, welcome back, everybody. Episode 13, and I can't tell you how hyped and excited I am for you guys to hear this. We have the one and only award-winning journalist, Andre Picard, on the show today. And there's a ton of content in this episode, but one thing I, I want you guys to really appreciate is the work he has done to transform healthcare. You're going to hear us talk about his involvement in the AIDS epidemic uh, in the uh, in the 80s and, and 90s and his contributions to the movement. It, it really is inspiring. But before we dive into that, I want to tell you about our sponsors. We got betterhelp.com. They're an online counseling service that provide efficient, convenient, readily available counseling at your disposal. And what I love about them is that it's in any format, whether that's via phone, whether that's via video chat, whether that's via text messaging, they are there and they provide high quality counseling that tailors to your needs, whether that's counseling for your teenager, whether it's marriage counseling, it's all available. And I love these guys and they do great work. So if you're interested in signing up, use discount code solving healthcare and get 10% off signing up. This show is also being sponsored by the podcast House of Pod. And can I tell you, I love this crew. Kave, who I got a bit of a man crush on, Liz and Joe, bring it. This is a, a hilarious medical podcast where they talk about any issues, whether it's screen time or addiction, and they just make it a conversation. They make it real. They don't get caught up in the data. It's a real life conversation on these real life issues. And I would point people towards episode 36. A lot of, uh, I know there's a lot of ICU crew out there, and they interviewed. Jessica Zetter, who um, created the Netflix show Extremis, and tons of lessons there in terms of managing end-of-life care and so on. But I love these guys. Check out their podcast. You could on anywhere that you listen to your podcast, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify. They're awesome. Next, I also want to tell you guys about a survey that we're uh, launching and alongside of uh, the Resource Optimization Network, and we're just trying to better serve our listeners. So. It's a two-minute survey. We just want to get a sense of what kind of content you guys want to listen to, come up with some solutions to common problems within your organizations. And so keep an eye out for that. It'll be available via Twitter, Facebook page, our home site. So put that on your radar. Okay. So today's episode is with the legendary journalist, Andre Picard. And this is the first part of of two that we're going to release with our interview with Andre Picard. And we talk about lessons he learned from, you know, the AIDS epidemic, as I mentioned, we talk about the 
impact of social determinants of health. We talk about how we could better serve the indigenous population and how we could address mental health needs in our country. I can't express the amount of expertise and and knowledge Andre has. He's got 40 years of journalism experience in the healthcare sector. He is an eight-time nominee for the National Newspaper Awards, Canada's top journalism prize. He's a past winner of the, of the prestigious Michener Award for Meritus Public Service Journalism. He is a five-time journalist. His latest book, which is awesome, Matters of Life and Death, Public Health Issues in Canada. We'll have links to that in the show notes. In 2002, he received the Sentinel Prize of of the Pan-American Health Organization as the top public health reporter in the Americas. In 2005, he was named Canada's first public health hero by the Canadian Public Health Association. And in 2007, he was honored as a champion of mental health. Anyway, without further ado, Andre Picard. Andre Picard, the one and only. Welcome to the show. Thank you. (laughs) <laughs> I have been a big fan for a long time, and I apologize for hounding you, trying to get you on the show, but I'm uh, super excited to have you on, and I know our listeners are excited as well. I want to ask you this. I want you to tell me a bit about your mother, and I know this sounds like a random question, but hearing her journey through healthcare, I think, puts a lot of perspective into some of the struggles that we're seeing in, in today's healthcare system. So if, if you don't mind, tell us a bit about your mom. Yeah, so I've been writing about healthcare for a long time, more than uh, almost 40 years now. And in the middle of that somewhere, my parents, as many elderly people do, started getting uh, sicker and having many conditions. And I've spoken often about my, my mom in particular, but my father had Alzheimer's a long journey, and my mom had COPD and then some vascular dementia, etc. And I always say that was my education. You know, an education I don't wish on anyone, but I Mm. learned a lot about the health system by combining my theoretical knowledge with, you know, the practical realities of having a a parent or parents with chronic health conditions. And you you learn a lot going through that, and you learn a lot of awful stuff. Mm Mm-hmm. And like, what are some of the things that really come to mind when you think about your parents' journey through the healthcare system? Well, often, uh, I think the biggest lesson I learned that I always repeat is that, uh, you know, the care is excellent in Canada. If you're in the right place at the right time, you get fabulous care. That was true of my parents. It's true of almost everyone in the system. Mm-hmm. But we have a lot of problem with transitions. So every bad thing that ever happened to them happened when they moved from one part of the system to the other. So from Mm. the hospital ICU to home with no home care, uh, from home care to uh, a long-term care facility, that wait was painful in Mm. many ways for my parents. Uh, My mom at the end of life uh, had a form of dementia, vascular dementia, uh, kept getting kicked out of her nursing homes because she was quote unquote violent. Now, my mom was about four foot 11, about 90 pounds. So she wasn't that violent. Uh, you know, she wasn't a threat to many people, but she lashed out as many people with dementia do. She was scared and ended up uh, spending her final days actually in a, in a psychiatric hospital oh, uh, that was being closed down. It was a, and ironically, the care was superb. There was almost no, no patients left. She had superb nursing care, but none of her friends came to visit. They were of that generation where, you know, the 
mental hospital, as they called it, was a shameful place to be. And she, she died very, very lonely. And that mm. was something that I found very crushing and, and devastating, especially as someone who writes a lot about mental health issues. It really drove those points home for me. Wow. I'm sorry to hear that your mom had to go through such, a, such an experience. And I think it really illustrates quite a few things uh, in terms of where we could do better in healthcare. And I guess where to start? Like, if, So if you had uh, you know, a magic wand or you were running the show, where would you put your resources? Like, where, what would you want to prioritize in terms of improving our current state of healthcare? Uh, well, I get asked that a lot, so I'd, I'd answer it in two ways. Uh, one, well, first of all, I'd preface it by saying there is no magic formula. You can uh, invest in a lot of different ways, but I think there's two big priorities. One is uh, people ask me if, if I had more money for healthcare. Uh, I wouldn't put it in healthcare because essentially we have a sickness care system. So I don't, I'm not sure we need more money for sickness care. So I would put it into early childhood education, feeding kids at school. I think that's where we're going to get the biggest bang for our buck over the long term. So that's mm-hmm. the, the big picture one. On the more practical level, you know, how do you improve sickness care today? I think we have to start with, with the basics. I think we have to uh, really bolster our primary care system. Uh, I always say if you don't have a good foundation for a health system, it's, you know, you built this house of, of care on a rickety foundation, and that's what we've done in Canada. We don't have good access to primary care. It's not organized. You know, no one is taken care of as they are in many systems around the world. Someone's mm. actually responsible for seeing you through and navigating you through the system. And that's one of our biggest failings is we, we lose people. People just fall through the cracks. Time after time, I talked before about transitions. So many people get harmed and hurt in those transitions because of a lack of organization. So I always talk about structure. I I always say all our problems in healthcare are structural and administrative. We don't really have medical problems. We have fabulous medicine. Mm -hmm. We're going to have to make it easier for the caregivers to deliver care and easier for the patients to navigate the care system. Yeah, and th- that's actually come up quite a bit on the show, especially the the transitions element. And, you know, obviously having a family doctor more engaged uh, or more involved potentially could help out. But w- what else do you see as ways of being able to improve these transitions of care? Well, I guess the, we have to say that the system has to become a system. We, we don't have a system. We have all these silos that are not really well connected. And we see it, you know, where do you see it more strike, most strikingly is in our emergency rooms every day. So we have overcrowded emergency rooms that have nothing to do with emergency, right? It's all about flow. So mm-hmm. there's no beds for people to admi- be admitted uh, to who need to be admitted. Those beds are full because we don't have home care. Uh, because there's no home care, we don't have room in long-term care. There's this whole connection and we, we've got to work all the way up, up the line or down the line, however you prefer. To, to work on that, to actually make it a system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, it's so tough because, I mean, as a guy that that's working in the, in the hospital, I see the inefficiencies on a regular basis. And I see the issues with siloing. I see the, the long wait times. And, you know, I, for me, I'd love to see us invest more into things that we know work or, or even into prevention. And the thing that kills me is how much money and resources go to things that I don't know, that just seem to not, that aren't effective or like, for example, one of the main areas I like to focus on is 
end of life care and how a lack of communication, a lack of communication allows for patients to get care that they probably never wanted in the first place. And it's not cheap care, it's expensive care, especially when you patients get admitted into the intensive care unit. So yeah, I, any thoughts on how we could be more efficient? I know that's a tough question, but in many ways, I feel like it would be, it would solve many of our issues that we've mentioned uh, so far. Yeah, so I think efficiency is not just about money. I, I think we obsess a lot about in Canada about how much we spend and not enough about how much value we get for the money we spend. And those yes. are very different things. Mm -hmm. I think that's where the focus has to be. Uh, you know, I hear lots of physicians especially complain, oh, patients want everything. And that, that's not my experience. My experience is patients want to be able to make reasonable choices, especially at end of life. You know, we do, there's gross amounts of over-treatment at end of life. Mm -hmm. uh, people want to be comfortable. I have the, the privilege of talking to lots of patients at end of life because of the work I do. And I'm always struck by how rational and reasonable they are. You know, a lot of people say, listen, I given a choice between, you know, this cancer treatment and spending a couple of extra weeks or maybe a month with my grandchildren, I want to spend it with the grandchildren. I don't want this extension of life that's artificial with all these symptoms, etc. I, I want to know realistically what are my chances and be able to make reasonable choices. So I think we have to talk to people uh, more seriously, allow, give them the information to make choices and not to uh, not patronize them. You know, we too often in medicine, we people are taught to try and fix everything and some things aren't fixable. So we have to make people more comfortable rather than trying to, to fix them. Exactly. And to me, a lot of that is just effective communication. You know, it's really figuring out what the patient's values are and what, what's important to them and, and taking that time. Because I think one of the main drivers of some of these issues is the perception or the reality of, of having that lack of time to, to address these things. Yeah. And the communication part obviously is something I'm in the communication business. Mm. I get to speak to lots of uh, med students, a lot of residents about this. And it's, I'm always struck by how little teaching there is about how to communicate with people. And that's such a, that's, I think, you know, at least 50% of medicine is just being able to talk to people and the knowledge is, is, is something else. But if you can't mm -hmm. talk, it doesn't matter how smart or how talented you are if you can't communicate that with the patients. Oh, amen. And we talked about this on a previous episode, but literally, you know, their training is, like I give a, I give a communication lecture to the, to the medical students in their second year. So that's a 50-minute talk. And, you know, they go through these practice, these uh, encounters with practice patients, uh, a couple of those, and, and then you're, you, you jump in the fire, you, you start seeing patients and, and, you know, the feedback you get is not always there. And so, yeah, like you're you, so, such a huge part of what you do is communicating. And, but, you know, the, the, the teaching, the, the skill set is not always emphasized in school. Excellent. So let me ask, like, what drove you to do healthcare journalism? Like, how did you land this job that your award got all these awards for you written books on the topic like how'd you get here well it's actually i i quite literally stumbled into it uh, i didn't start out uh, covering health journalism i actually started my journalism career in university as a 
a record reviewer. That may date me a bit saying records, but music <laughs> reviewer, I guess. Uh, that that was my interest. They're coming back, though. The records are coming back. Yeah, I know. I, I think my uh, old collection is taking on some value now. Nice. <laughs> But so that, that's how I started. I got interested in uh, uh, the student newspaper because of my interest in music. Uh, I was a business student. People are often surprised by that, that I mm. actually have an accounting degree, not any science degree. Mm. Uh, because of that, I ended up uh, the way student organizations run. They're always financially troubled. Uh, because I was an accounting student, I ended up being the editor of the newspaper. Uh, because of that, I had to write other stuff. And then I started writing on other topics. And uh, the time I was in university, the early 1980s, was the time of AIDS. So I started mm. writing about AIDS, as we did at that time. And uh, that's sort of been the arc of my career. So for 40 years, I've been writing about AIDS. That was my entry point into to healthcare. And I think that that shapes the way I write. I don't write so much about medicine. I write about the politics of health and the mm -hmm. policy. And when, when AIDS started out, it was a very, very political issue. There were no treatments. Uh, there was a lot of discrimination against gay men. Bathhouses were being raided. This is the stuff we wrote about. So that's mm. always sort of influenced the way I approach health. I see it as a very political, social issue as much as a medical one. Wow. I mean, you must have learned so much and seen so much during that time. Like, I can't even imagine. Yeah, it was a very, uh, very exciting but frightening time. You know, it was one of the, it still is one of the world's biggest epidemics in the history of the world, in fact. Uh, and it started out there with a lot of, people were very scared. And we didn't know what uh, people were frightened about sitting on toilet seats. You know, it seems funny in retrospect, but they had no idea uh, what hmm. this new disease was. It killed people very quickly. Uh, you know, there were no treatments for HIV for many, many years. Mm -hmm. It was just a death sentence. So it was a, it's a frightening time, but really an educational time. Uh, then I went, as a, I went as a student to work at the Globe and Mail as a summer student. And they said, oh, you know, you know something about AIDS. You've written about this. The mainstream media didn't really cover it at first. So mm -hmm. I was just sort of thrown into my lap and I started covering it there, uh, which, you know, you have more resources, more readership, and then you get more and more knowledge and he's kind of and then I just kind of stuck with it over the years well I, I mean what an experience like you must have met and developed some amazing relationships covering that topic because like think about what you've seen you see all these relatively young people dying early and you're seeing the development of the medicines and improvement of care you're seeing the the more openness towards dealing with AIDS patients and HIV patients, like a, like a, it must have been like a, a whole, like a roller coaster ride. Yeah, it was quite fascinating. We really saw a reshaping of, I think, of how medical coverage was done. So journalism changed profoundly because of AIDS. I think mm. medicine changed profoundly. Uh, the drug business changed a lot, and all of this was the the genesis of it was the the AIDS movement. You know, the mm -hmm. people who were infected early were young gay men. They tended to be very educated, very outspoken. And that, that was new. Uh, medicine didn't know what to do with the patients who talked back and who protested and who said, no, that's not good enough. Mm -hmm. We want to be treated differently. And that, I think that uh, the breast cancer movement then rose out of that, uh, mm -hmm. took those lessons and became you know, it was more socially palatable, women with breast cancer than men with AIDS, but they took those same approaches and they went on to, to shape uh, the healthcare and health coverage uh, as well. That's a, a really good point, actually. 
that I didn't really think about. Like there's, there's a lot to learn on how to change healthcare. Cause I mean, this, this show's called solving healthcare. So we're, you know, we, we know there's a lot of issues that we're trying to tackle, but if you think about the process or whatever, yeah, the process was to increase awareness, to increase the visibility, to make sure that money was invested to solve these problems, you know, like there's infinite amount of lessons here. Yeah. And I think one of the big ones in the AIDS movement for, you know, it's been 40 years and they're still debating what's the most effective way to bring about change. Is it to work from the inside, to cooperate, mm-hmm. or is it to work from the outside and protest and demand more? And I, I don't think there's a single answer to that question. I think there has to be a bit of both. And both those approaches have really uh, benefited us in different ways. Is that how you feel? It is that what you, you know, after doing this for forty years and and seeing different movements and and aspects of changes, you don't feel like there's something that helps more than others? I, I think we need both. You know, if, mm-hmm. uh, in, insiders tend to get complacent and they get. Uh, comfortable, and they always need to be pushed. It's always great to have new types of activists. You know, now there's a lot of uh, activism from the Indigenous community, and that's, that's mm-hmm. great. Uh, and I see many parallels there from the, the gay rights movement 30, 40 years ago. And it's mm-hmm. those things have to, uh, they have to keep coming. We have to be challenged constantly. And to yeah. me as a journalist, that's one of the big lessons I think I learned early on uh, covering AIDS is don't ever judge people. Just, you know, accept and listen to the, their point. You know, don't uh, fall for stereotypes and for assumptions, and you learn a lot more. You must have learned a lot about being a patient, seeing them go through all that they went through. Like, because I'd imagine a lot of the little things that we take for granted would be affected. Like, I'm just putting myself, you know, in the mid-80s and having being diagnosed with AIDS and I, my patients tell me all the time, like, I, you know, I do ICU, I also do palliative care and, you know, being touched, being talked to as an equal, as looking them in the eye, as I'm talking to them, like all these little things almost have, I don't want to say healing properties, but they, they're impactful. Oh, they're very, they're profoundly important. So in my, my last book, I told this story about Uh, from the early days of working at the Globe. So one of the first eight stories I did at the Globe was someone called into the newsroom and talked about their partner was in hospital and was being badly treated. So I was in in Toronto at the time. Uh, I was at uh, St. Mike's Hospital, and I went over to the hospital to visit this uh, gentleman. Mm -hmm. And I I went into his room, and I shook his hand, and I introduced myself, and he burst into tears. And he Mm -hmm. said, no one's touched me for the week I've been here. Oh. And uh, they had piled up his food trays at the door. They had a sign on the on his uh, uh, patient room saying "danger," you know, sort of a radioactive sign. That that's what how how AIDS patients were treated at the time. Mm-hmm. So I just wrote this story very matter of factly. How's this per- this person is being treated? Uh, it was in you know we didn't have the internet that in those days, but with the, was on the front page of the Globe. Mm-hmm. And that story is very very impactful. Within you know the paper hit the doorstep of the hospital, and they fixed that immediately. And, and St. Mike's is now, you know, it's known as a, one of the best places in the world for AIDS treatment, but it didn't start out that way. And it's that kind wow. of, those little things you realize, wow, I can, I can make a difference to a person's life and maybe to a few more. It inspires you at a journal, as a journalist to say, to listen to those stories. That must have been so 
rewarding to to see that you, you like you directly had such an impact on so many patients by giving them a voice. Because imagine that that patients being in a spot, you know, where you're scared. You are you got this terminal diagnosis, and you're being isolated, and you're not feeling loved, and you're not feeling respected. And um, you coming in, giving that him a voice, bringing awareness to the to the issue. I mean, that's this is what this is why I wanted you on the show to be able to talk about ways and 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 innovations and and such acts that really can create change in 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 healthcare and. Um, I'm glad you told that story because uh, it, uh, I think it will mean a lot to a lot of people. But you know, those things, those things are are rewarding uh, in retrospect, but they're also humbling because you realize, you know, for every person you've told their story, there's maybe ten or a hundred others whose stories aren't being told, and they might be in might much worse condition. This mm-hmm. gentleman was, you know, uh, wealthy, very well connected, knew how to call the globe. Uh, get someone over there. Uh, you know, a lot of people don't have that privilege. So we have to, I think we have to be humbled by this and realize that we're only doing so much and we could be doing a lot more. So, you know, this giving voice to the the disenfranchised is, I think, a really important part of the media. Mm-hmm. And it's, we don't always do it well. Absolutely. I mean, we could talk a bit actually about the vulnerable patient populations because, uh, you know, uh, today actually we released a show on uh, one of our residents. She leads a clinic where she sees homeless patients at, at a church and does uh, preventative medicine and takes blood pressures and, and t- checks their blood sugars, like basic care that they might not normally be provided. And um, I, I was so proud when I heard the story because, I mean, in my opinion, this is a huge problem especially with the opioid crisis being the way it is. And I know you've voiced uh, some concerns on how we treat our vulnerable patient populations. Any thoughts in terms of next steps or big picture concerns? Well, I think, you know, over the years, I've learned to the another thing you learn when you write about these uh, marginalized and vulnerable populations, it starts with AIDS, but it's the same issues with everyone is that you have, to, you have to make a little bit of extra effort to, to reach out and, and to ensure that people are heard. Uh, I learned a lot, and I still write fairly obsessively about the social determinants of health. Mm-hmm. You know, if you, uh, pretty early on when you start writing about healthcare, you realize that all the medicine in the world is not that important compared to you know, the basics, having a roof over your head, having a decent income, having connections with other people is so important for your mm-hmm. health, having an education. All these these basic things that we don't think of as healthcare are way more important to our health than any amount of medicine. So I I write a lot. I I think the distinction between social services and health services is a bit of an artificial one mm-hmm. that we should try and and get rid of. But we grossly underfund social services in Canada. You know, we spend a lot on sickness care, but we don't spend very much uh, on on social programs, on making people healthy and ensuring they don't get sick in the first place. Mm -hmm. Uh, In Canada, we spend about 13% of our GDP on social programs. A country like Denmark spends 27%. -hmm. Not surprisingly, they spend less on sickness care. Uh, They have better health outcomes. They have more fairness and equity in their society. And those are things we don't measure enough and that we don't pay enough attention to. So Andre, I couldn't agree more. You know, I think we're seeing more and more studies looking at 
the impact of social determinants of health. And, you know, I, I really wish it was more emphasized. I, you know, I, I think the more I'm doing these podcasts, you realize if you invest early, in, you know, in our kids and our community, it will impact care in the long term. And as you mentioned, these Scandinavian c- countries have, have shown this in, in the past. And, you know, I even I have a, a, a colleague of mine, his kid, his school, they, they provide uh, breakfast for kids that can't afford it. And that program was cut. They needed about $1,000 to operate that program. And they couldn't find $1,000. Meanwhile, we spend millions of dollars on drugs that might extend life by three months. And we're not invested in our kids. You know what I'm saying? I, it just it blows me away. But honestly, I think this is where, if you want to get the most value or the most, where we should be putting our resources is, is into, into our communities and in prevention. And uh, it's, a, it's, it's tough to see. Yeah. So we mentioned a bit about the indigenous population. You know, you know, when we were talking about, um, you know, vulnerable patient populations, I don't even know where to start. Where do we start? You know, like this is, we see at the bedside where, you know, younger, they're younger patients that are dying, they're sicker and, you know, feel like they're being abandoned in so many ways by our society and by healthcare. What are the solutions there? Like, what can we do? Yeah, so again, I don't think there's a magical solution. This is something, this is a problem we've created over hundreds of years. It's not going to be solved overnight. But I think the starting point is a recognition of, of the realities. So if you look at the, you know, the good a place to start as any is the, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, the, the recommendations they've made. And some of those are pretty basic. It's just realizing the source of the problem, uh, colonialism, uh, how that has created these you know, the perfect storm for people to be sick. So I've written mm. a lot about this, uh, how you couldn't imagine if you were trying to create an evil uh, form of killing people, you couldn't do better than what Canada has done. This creation mm. of reserves, underfunding, isolation, uh, stripping people of their language and culture, taking children away and sending them to schools. You, you can't imagine a better way of destroying culture. So we have to work on, on rebuilding that. So mm-hmm. that's the first step is to stop doing the bad stuff. And I think we're getting there. Uh, then we have to start repairing. So things like making sure communities have basic uh, sanitation and water. Uh, it's, you know, beggar's belief, but the reality is hundreds of communities in Canada just don't have clean drinking water. Uh, they don't have sewage. They have uh, honey pots. So they collect their waste in plastic bags and a truck comes around once a week and picks up their their human waste. And that's in Canada, one of the wealthiest countries in the world. So we have to deal with that really basic stuff uh, and quickly and make sure kids get an education uh, that we deal with discrimination. And, you know, the daily realities that Indigenous people face are the ones we have to tackle first. Yeah. And it's so sad when you think about this is our country and as you mentioned, it's a first world country and we're still seeing these issues. I mean, I have a colleague, Mike Curlew, who should be on the show soon, talking about at, when they're treating patients, they, they, they're worried about running out of oxygen tanks. They might not have all the medications or antibiotics that they, they might need to treat patients. And this is in our own country. You know, it's, 
is mind-boggling. Yeah, and he does, uh, he does fabulous work up in Sioux Lookout. But I think the flip side of it, too, is we can't let ourselves be, you know, I think for too long we've kind of thrown up our hands and said, oh, the problem's too big, uh, it's too horrible, it can't be fixed. So I think we also have to realize that there's a lot of good going on in Indigenous communities. We write mm. about a few very poor ones, but there are lots where the communities are thriving, where they're doing really well. They're educating their young people. They have great health clinics. They've mm. brought in midwives so people don't have to be shipped south to give birth. So there's a lot of positive stuff. Mm. So we can't focus, you know, we in the media tend to focus on the bad stuff a little too much. And mm. I think that's important. But at the same time, we can't forget that there's a lot of good, a lot of sharing is going on between Indigenous communities, uh, learning and uh, copying things that are working well in other communities. So I think there's a lot of hope there. Uh, This is also a generation, a lot of young people, you know, the Indigenous community is a very, very young uh, compared to the mainstream Canadian community. More than half the people uh, in uh, Indigenous communities are under the age of 15. Mm-hmm. as opposed to Canada, where about half of us are over the age of 40. So it's a very, very different demographic. And we have to give those that younger generation some hope. And I think there's a lot of hope there to be glommed onto. What about mental illness? This is a topic that we've touched on quite a bit on the show that we feel or I feel is underserved and underappreciated. I'm wondering... Any thoughts in terms of how we could do a better job at addressing mental illness in general, and then maybe even talk about, this might segue naturally into into some funding issues, but yeah, maybe any thoughts in terms of our approach to mental illness? Yeah, so I'll start with, I'll try and start with the positive. So the positive in 30, 40 years that I've been covering this, it's changed quite dramatically. So things are getting much better. There's a recognition that we have to deal with with mental illness. Uh, I think one of the important things is we we have to stop making this artificial distinction between mental and physical health. Uh, I like to call mental illnesses brain diseases. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just like liver disease or heart disease, we have brain disease. So we have to attack that stigma part of it. I think we have to recognize why uh, we have some of the problems we do. So if we go back to the, the beginnings of Medicare, One of the oddities of our Medicare system is when we started funding hospitals uh, publicly in the 1940s and 50s, we excluded psychiatric hospitals. They were considered part of the the jail system, the penal Mm. system. So they got grossly underfunded, literally the money dried up. We released people into nothing. So we had this policy of deinstitutionalization, which, you know, decades later, we're still paying the price for. Canada has one of the highest rates of homelessness in the, in the developed world. Mm. Almost everyone who lives in our streets, about 20,000 people a night in Canada sleep on our streets, probably 90% of them have severe mental illness. Mm-hmm. So we have to tackle that at, at, the, at the root. We have to ensure that people uh, get the care that they deserve. You know, imagine if we had 20,000 cancer patients in the streets every night. No one would tolerate that. And we have to just have the same attitude that this is not acceptable and we have to deal with it. So sorry for ranting, but... Oh, no, that's perfect. It Honestly, though, it, I mean, I couldn't agree more. Like we, you know, see, it's January. It's uh, Let's Talk Bell month. We've, you know, locally champions like Daniel Alferson has uh, voiced, you know, how we got to reduce the stigma of mental illness and 
and I, I know, I, I do feel like we're getting there, but I, I still feel like it's like when we're in a, in a, in a first world country like Canada, where, you know, we we're, we say we're going to cover universal, we have universal healthcare yet, you know, if there's a child that needs to be assessed for whether it's anxiety or depression or an adult with a similar problem, many of our citizens have to pay out of pocket to be able to be seen by a psychologist, for example. And to me, that's, I don't want to say it's a crime. It's just, it's a, it's a barrier, you know? And I just, if we're going to take this as seriously as we should, I think we should do a better job in supporting it. Yeah, it's definitely a barrier and it's inefficient uh, and it's ineffective. And we, you know, we shouldn't be doing that for any number of reasons, but we have to recognize the history of that and fix it, realize why this problem exists and then address it. The other part of it, I think too, is, you know, you mentioned things like Bell Let's Talk, Daniel Alfredson. Those initiatives are important. They're important to get people talking. But I think we pay much too much attention to people with not very severe mental illness. I'm not, I don't want to underplay the fact that someone can be depressed, uh, but it's the people with a very severe, almost often intractable or untreatable illness, the people we see in our streets, they need a disproportionate amount of care. And that's, we don't focus enough on them. I don't think we focus enough on the sickest of the sick. We kind of take the low-hanging fruit too often. Mm. Yeah, I, I wonder, like part of me is thinking how complicated and difficult of an issue that can be because, you know, you get, you're mentally ill, whether you got schizophrenia, you are like, you know, you may or may not be compliant, you run away from home, you live on the street, and then to try and get you situated back into, you know, society, that's a, that's a tough road. You know, and I, I would, I do hear you though. Like it would be, these are the people that need our help the most. But um, man, there's there's so many layers there. Yeah, there's a lot there. But you know, we have we have good research. We know one of the most important things for people with severe mental illness is to have a home. You know, mm-hmm. the Housing First Initiative Canada has done some fabulous work there. It just hasn't been expanded enough. Uh, there's some really uh, fascinating bioethical debates. I've written many columns over the years about uh, do people have a right to be sick? You know, do you have the right, if you have schizophrenia, are you allowed to refuse treatment and live in squalor, put your life at risk every day? Is that a right or is that a failure of society? And I, mm. I don't think these are easy questions, but I think we have to not shy away from from talking about them. Uh, mm. Over the years, I talked to, talked to so many families with uh, you know, people with their loved ones living on the streets, uh, trying to kill themselves, or overdosing on drugs every day, and they mm. feel so powerless to not be able to help them. And again, they wouldn't have that problem if they had uh, cancer or, you know, whatever. We would treat them, whether mm. they want to be treated or not. And we, we don't have that same, we have this sort of uh, self-righteous civil liberties attitude about some stuff that I, I don't think is appropriate. Mm. Well, that's fair. I'm just, I'm brainstorming out loud in terms of real ways that that change could happen. Or uh, like even if we were trying to improve on how we approach mental illness today, based on what we've done so far and and the awareness that's happening now, like what could we do? Is it a resource thing where we should be emphasizing our our time? Like I guess I'm not, 
it's not clear in my mind what we could do to fix this now. You know what I'm saying? I I think it's about priorities. I don't think it's about resources. There's few, there are few things that are more expensive than having someone live in the streets, right? They are, they're a great burden on the, uh, they end up in the emergency room a lot. They end up in the courts. They end up in jail. Homeless person costs about a, our society about $110,000 a year. They're very, very wow. expensive. Imagine if we spent that money a little smarter. And that's what initiatives like Housing First are about. You can give someone a home, a reasonable place to live. You can give them oversight. You know, a lot of people with severe mental illness need oversight, a nurse, mm-hmm. a social worker. But once they're in place, it's so much easier to give them the other things. And we can do that for a fraction of the cost. Mm. So, you know, we can debate this economically. We can debate it ethically. There's no question we can we can do better on a number of counts. Absolutely. Yes. Thanks for joining us on Solving Healthcare. That was our first of two parts with Andre Picard. If you want to follow Andre on Twitter, he's at Picard on Health. If you want to follow us on Twitter or on Facebook or Instagram, we're at Quadcast. Any comments, please send them to quadcast99 at gmail.com. We really appreciate your input. And I can't wait for you all to hear the next episode. So stay tuned and thanks for listening in, guys. Peace.